You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking organizational culture. My guest is Colin D. Ellis. Colin was shocked to find what he saw as a gaping hole in the world of organizational culture. There was, in his eyes, no definitive how-to guide for leaders who want to shape and enhance their workplace environment. So, he set about fixing it. If you're a leader who knows how important the culture of your team or organization is, not just to production, but to the happiness of the human beings you work with, then this episode is for you. With Colin's help, I churn through the ins and outs of what culture is all about And then he hits us with his gold, insightful pieces of wisdom to help get you started. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Colin D. Ellis. Colin D. Ellis, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. Now, Colin, we have just a little task tonight. We're going to talk about what organizational culture is, why people are generally so bad at it, or you can correct me on that. And then most importantly, you're going to tell all of us how on earth do we create the type of organizational culture that we know we need. How do you think about that, mate? Do you reckon we're going to get through that in about 40 minutes? 40 minutes, God, I was going to say, is this like the first four-day podcast? Yeah, mate, we're totally going to get through in 40 minutes. This is the first ever four-day podcast. (laughs) The four-day marathon podcast, (laughs) Now, how many listeners do you think we'd have by the end of that? I reckon we'd be in the negatives. I don't know. It could be like the OJ Simpson uh, thing where we just pick up people along the way. It's like, these guys are still going. You should get on this yeah, quick before it disappears forever. <laughs> and they're going crazy. They're saying crazier and crazier stuff. Yeah. God knows what they're drinking, but it's just going a bit bonkers. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Now, I'm going to start off, Colin, with the most obvious question. You probably get sick of answering this one, but I just want to lay the platform really neatly for our listeners When we're talking about workplace culture, what on earth is it that we mean by that? Because we use that word a lot. What do we mean when we use it? Yeah, we do, um, David. And essentially, workplace culture is the way that we do things around here. You know, and that's your kind of Mm. standard answer. But, you know, often I'll say to people, your workplace culture is the way that you feel. And you know whether you've got a good one or a bad one, depending on how you feel, the morning that you have to go to work or the fact that you don't mm. want to go to work. So it's the way we do things around here, but it, you know, it's kind of often dictated by how we feel. You know, it always makes me laugh when I'm around organizations and I hear them spending mega bucks on a new system or piece of software or a new process that's going to save them 7% or whatever it might be. And they, they're gushing over this 7% increased productivity or 7% this, 7% that. And we know, you know, I know, the listeners know that if we were to work on workplace culture, we wouldn't be getting 7% benefit. We'd be getting benefits in the hundreds of percentage points because workplace culture is the way we do things around here. It is everything about what it's like to work here. And therefore, it's everything about how committed we are and how creative we are and all of those magical things, those things that say that we care about our work, 
How do you feel when you hear conversations in organizations about incremental gains when you see their culture is bleeding at the seams? There's a bit of me inside that dies every time I hear it, David. It's it's yeah. one of those things where, you know, I just recently had a conversation about a, a with an organization. They're doing a big digital change transformation, a digital transformation program. You know, and so, you know, good conversation, like awesome. That sounds great. Hey, what are you transforming? And it's like, oh, we're putting in a new ERP system. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what you're transforming. You know, what are you transforming? And fundamentally, they don't realize that the thing in trans, when we talk about transformation, it, it's about culture. And they're like, okay, so we, what, what do we do? Like, you know, is, is there a course we can send everyone on? I'm like, yeah, nah, you know what? Yeah. We've been doing that for 20 years. There's no proof that any of that works, you know, only yeah. through redefining what this thing called culture is and then putting su- some sustained effort and a little bit of money behind creating something that people genuinely want to be a part of. Will you ever get the returns that you're looking for on any investment? Uh, but you're right, David, they still don't understand that. They look at all these great organizations around the world and they're like, oh, we want to be like those guys, you know, and they go on these yeah. fancy Scandinavian field trips. And then they come yeah, back, nice. change a f- yeah, they change a few names on some things like, there you go, we've done it. And everyone's still yeah. walking around going, yeah, no. Nah, Brand new culture. Yeah, it still feels awful, mate, yeah. It's kind of like we see organizations trying to fine-tune something, like a, a top-level sportsman working on the one percenters, when in fact they're a huge, oversized, obese person sitting on a couch. The little one percenters that a professional sportsman might work on aren't going to make any difference when you're 60 kilograms overweight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was, I was working with an organization last week, and I said, everyone's got to get 5% better. That's like, because 1% isn't enough. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror and you've got to change some habits. You've got to change some behaviors. And you've got to say, do I want to be a part of this thing going forward? And if you don't, then you have to leave because you're just going to hold everybody back. And if you do, you've got a decision to make. You know, and that message, you know, I, I tell senior leaders that at conferences as well is like, if you really want any kind of culture change, if you want to build something that people want to be a part of, then you've got to role model it every single day of every single week, every single year until you start to build a following and demonstrate to others that it starts with you. So I started this podcast making a foundation claim that I was I was kind of just assuming you at least partly agreed with. I said, we just don't understand culture very well generally. Am I right in that? We, in all of the work that you do, is there evidence to support that we're not very good at culture across the broad, that we just don't understand it? Yeah, that's uh, that comes through very strongly, uh, David. The, whenever I ask people to describe their culture, they'll say things, oh, we use JIRA. Oh, well, you know, we're diverse and inclusive. And hmm. oh, right. we've got a flexible working. I'm like, yeah, but describe it. And so very few people can. And so what they end up doing is wheeling out the culture changes hard card, almost hmm. as an excuse for not doing it. You know, every so many organizations that I speak to, when I talk to them about the work that I do, and, you know, when I talk about the past, you know, I was a permanent employee myself for 30 years. And, and, you know, I said part of what made us successful in our teams is we took the decision not to conform, to redefine what we did, you know, and that took us maybe two to four days. And then we built on that. People will go, yeah, we don't have time for that. It's like, well, do you want to take the time to understand the component parts of your culture or do you just want to talk about having a good culture? Because if you just want to talk about it, go for your life, nothing will change. But if you actually want to do something about it, then you've got to take some meaningful action. So you talked about people saying key things that that are pointers to you that they don't really understand what they're talking about when they say culture. 
What are the words that people use that suggest you've got a live one here? You've got someone who is at least tuned in to what we're really getting at here. They have a core understanding. They'll talk about vision. Uh, they'll talk about values. They'll talk about harnessing emotional intelligence. David, I think that's a big one. The values is a big one for me. You know, when I, you know, and it's not kind of standard Enron values. I mean, you know, kind of that's the the running joke with organization values is a bunch of senior managers went on an offsite and came up with them yeah. by themselves. Whereas, yeah. you know, where you see some, you know, some of the, the values that people have, like Culture Amp, like Atlassian, these guys, you know, taking time to understand what makes the company tick. And so when people talk in terms of values, you know that you've got someone or you're talking to someone that fundamentally understands the component parts of culture and also that they haven't got all the answers as well, you know, that they're constantly evolving. They don't talk about culture change. They talk about cultural evolution. Hey, do you think, Colin, that Sometimes senior leaders attack things like a new software or a new process or a new project methodology because that's nice and tangible. They can feel that and touch it. They can point to their boss and say, hey, this is what we've done. These are the things that we changed in the first week and then in the fifth week, whereas approaching a culture and trying to massage a culture and improve a culture is is much less tangible. It's really hard to point at. And as you've already alluded to, it's a bit of a slow burn. Yeah, and you know, I I was in the you know, position myself, David, as a former senior exec in in the public service and in the private sector as well, is you know kind of fell into the trap of taking the the fast and cheap approach to culture. Mm. Ag- Agile is just the latest fast and cheap approach to culture. We think that sending everybody on a on Scrum training is the answer. We think going open plan is the answer. You know, going open plan, the thing statistically proven to kill collaboration, all of a yeah. sudden is the answer. And so I think often it's well-meaning. I think they don't really know where to start. And, you know, I think that once they fully understand what culture is, they there's much more of a likelihood that they'll want to tackle it. But whilst they don't understand what it is, the component parts of it, they're just going to go, right, let's bring a firm of consultants in to tell us what we already know. And then yeah. they'll leave us with a set of actions that we'll never take. We'll um, never you know, do. Never do. Never do. Yeah. So you, you talk about your book, Culture Fix, which I think is pretty hot off the press. I might have even got a copy before it went live to the public, Colin, so thank you for that. But you talk about your book as being the first ever how-to manual for fixing a culture. Why is it after all of this time, you know, management consultants have been, you know, what is it, a, a 90s, 50s, 90s, 60s kind of thing? Why has it been so long until someone has written this manual, this thing that people, senior leaders can pick up and actually use to guide some meaningful actions in organizations? Mate, that's a great question. And one I don't know the answer to. Every time I started a new job- They left job, it for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe they did. It's like, we just got <laughs> some idiot to research it for years and then write it. Well, I think it's, it's part of it. It's a bit of a minefield. I think that there, there are a lot, don't get me wrong, there's lots of great culture books out there. You know, I read- Powerful by Patty McCord, who used to work for Netflix, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. But they zone in on on a specific type of business, but then they never give away how. And, you know, for me as as a manager, what I wanted was to be able to pick something up that says, listen, if you do this, you've got a good chance of succeeding. And so that's the book that I really wanted to write. And I remember, you know, what early on in when I was writing it, you know, someone said, listen, don't write the how to book. You want people to buy that from you. And that just felt. I don't know. That just felt so callous. I'm like, no, I wanted to, I want to buy the, I want to write the book that I would have wanted to buy and at least provide some pointers, some case, some case studies, 
but some real world practical stuff that people in any business could use. You know, I had a, I had a dentist get in touch with me to say he heard me on a podcast and he went and bought the book. And he changed what, the way he did his stuff. you before? No, I know. It's hard to believe, oh, right? Oh, Colin. <laughs> I thought you were my first. I thought I was your first. No, mate, you're, you're my second, uh, but don't let that <laughs> put you off. Uh, and he changed the way he'd run his dentist surgery. And so it's, it's little things like that where you can provide those pointers. And I don't know why no one's done it before. That must be so rewarding for you when you hear an organization, and I know dental practices can get large, but it, presumably, you know, it, it, relatively, it's a small business for for your work to have it had an impact on that dentist and their business, you know that that's having an impact on their life. That's changing their life. It's changing the lives of the people who work in that practice. Well, yeah. And he cheered with me his vision statement, David, and he said it changed the way he thought about the future of his practice, which I just thought was such a, it was, well, you know, I just said, you know, thanked him for sending me the email because it's very rare that you get that kind of feedback. Yeah, it is. Um, and you know, and 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 it was it was a, the technique that I shared in the book was just something that I learned back in two thousand and six from somebody else. So I then passed that praise back on to them. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So would you say, Colin, in the work that you do, and this is actually an unplanned question, mm. that you are the communicator of everything that has come before you in terms of understanding culture. Your book is very good and you come up with a lot of your own great ideas and your, your own models. You do share a lot of wisdom from the past. Do you see you yourself and the role that you play as a bit of a communicator of all of that wisdom? Yeah, and I and I try and get that across very early in the book, David, because I you know I there's so much good stuff out there. That's why I wanted to include all of the research in the book. There are so many great consultancies that have done so many, so many great reports. There are so many organizations doing great stuff that really all I wanted to do was to kind of collate some of that, to curate some of that, and then to kind of put it out in the world in a, in a way that's easy to read. I didn't want to write, you know, just ridiculously long chapters. I wanted to mm. write with a, a lighter style, with a little bit of humor, just to make that stuff accessible. And it's stuff that I've built up over the years, incorporated into the way that I did things. So I, you know, communicator, I guess, curator as well of some of the great things that people are doing. So we're going to get you to give away your gold wisdom in a little while. And, and Colin, for listeners, is going to give us his top however many. We haven't sort of agreed to what it's going to be, Colin, whether it's five or six or seven or three things that we as leaders can start thinking about when we know we want to shift the culture in our workplace and we just need to know where to start. We want to have a bit of a framework to wrap our head around. Colin's going to give that away in a few minutes, but I want to continue to lay the groundwork here because I so love talking about culture and all its varying forms and and how important it is to a workplace. I want to ask you, Colin D. Ellis, what is the best, single best workplace culture you've ever been involved with? The best one, the last organization I worked uh, for in the UK, David, uh, was a group called Littlewood Shop Direct Group. We we had a pretty bold vision for the business, and that was to be the number one online retailer at a time where the organization had no online presence at all. They'd just been overtaken by a retail company, online retail company called ASOS, as seen on screen. And everything that we did, we did in exactly the right way. They took, you know, kind of 300 people off site for two days to work on wow. culture. Yeah, That's I know. That's an investment. 
Exactly right. You know, and I, I say that to organizations now. It's like, if you want to make a statement that this is different, then you've got to do something mm. on that scale. And did yeah. they use any of my ideas, David? Nah, they didn't use a one. But did I feel <laughs> part of the output that we created? Yeah. I mean, there were maybe six facilitators for 300 people. We did the work ourselves. We were given very clear instructions. And when we went back to the office, we lived and breathed everything that we'd come up with because it was ours. We'd done yeah. it. We'd defined it. We wanted to achieve the goals. You know, it kind of informed every decision that we made. We managed out some people that didn't want to be, who wanted to get in the way of culture. And I think often that's a big mistake organizations make. They they tolerate yeah. brilliant jerks. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was, that was easily the best culture that I've been in. You know, I was surrounded by people with growth mindsets who, who wanted to succeed personally, but wanted to succeed as part of the team and part of the organization as well. Hey, you make the point in your book pretty early on that we talk a lot about the giants in Silicon Valley because they've made a bit of a splash about their new age, their progressive workplace cultures. And, and of course, they're very good at telling us about them, which is a gift to the business world. It really is. And it makes for interesting viewing for people like you and me. But it's not just the giants of Silicon Valley who do it well. Through your research and all of the reading that you've done and all of the conversations that you've had, what are some of the organizations that have impressed you with their understanding and their their shaping, I guess, of workplace culture? I mean, there are so many. Um, David, one, one particular one that I came across was um, an organization called Elite SEM. They were, they're a digital marketing agency. They're based in, in New York. And again, like most of the great organization cultures, they had a, a CEO who saw it as his role to create a great workplace culture. Now, that's still not to say he's not great at his job. Of, of, of course, he is. He's kind of been there and done that. But what he wanted to do was to create an environment where people wanted to come to work. And he challenged the way that uh, organizations worked in, in a similar field to him. He wanted to challenge the way that people were rewarded and recognized. And you see this everywhere. And, the, you know, these little stories, you know, from, from haulage companies, to environmental companies. There are so many people doing so many great things. You know, Zappos are, are an online shoe retailer. I do talk about those guys a lot because what they do is they put everything out there and they just sell shoes and they do everything to create a great environment for their staff. You know, and, and it, certainly for the, the organizations that I worked for, David, is when everyone was happy, we did our best work and we hit yeah. every single target. And did we want to be in work? Well, not necessarily, but while we were there, we, you know, we were happy and wanted to do the best that we could. All right. Now we're one question away from you revealing your brilliance, your your free wisdom, Colin. This last question is is something that I want to get my own head around. In large organizations, we talk about organizational culture as if it's this one thing. And no matter how large the organization is, it has this culture. But my experience, the lived experience that I have is that there are pockets of culture across the same organization. And, and what might be fabulous over in that corner of this same floor is awful over here in the middle. And it depends on a number of different things. Am I right in that? Is, is it possible for a large organization to have a uni culture or are there always these pockets or tribes? So great organization cultures, it's one of the it's one of the big mistakes organizations make when they do actually decide that they're going to work on, on culture is what they do is they say, right, we're going to define it at the top here and then we're going to force it down. 
But that's not the way that culture works because great organization cultures, exactly as you said, are made up of great subcultures. And so this is something that I used to do as a manager myself is me and my team would define how we would work. We would create something that was just great. And people would be like, what What are you guys doing over there? And then it would become infectious and people would copy Mm -hmm. it. So really to create a great organizational culture, what you need is is great subcultures. So you need great managers in each of those areas to, you know, give a damn about creating a great place to work for their staff. And then when everybody does a similar thing, so in other words, when, when people don't go off and do different things, then what you get is a great organizational culture. You know, I, I talk about this a lot and I, and I say it's not, it's not like there's a, a, you know, kind of a magic bullet or there's not like some magic beans. It's literally, you know, we create silos when different people do different things in different ways. Yeah. But if everybody- It's not rocket science, the, is it? It's not, mate. It's really, really not. And all you need is a bit of a formula for doing it. And if everybody did it in the, exactly the same way, you get a great culture. Yeah, that's so interesting to talk about it that way. You know, the idea that little things in large organizations can have a huge impact. And you're so right when you say that if a team over here is doing it well, other teams around them can feel the vibe. They hear the positive comms. They they see the energy and the enthusiasm. And it kind of just, it's infectious in a way. And I'm also really interested as you're talking through there about the role of the organization, the role of the leader or the manager. And then there's that role of the individual who's in a team who's got to decide whether to jump on board or not, to whether they want to be part of this movement that we're trying to put together or they want to be a cynic in the corner. I find that really interesting as well. Yeah, because culture is the sum of everybody, David. It's the sum of everyone's attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, traditions, stories. It belongs to everybody. And so, you know, what, what I'll say to senior leaders is that you don't own it. It's not yours. You might have the head of HR, might be the custodian of it, but they don't own it. But they have to role model it. Also, everybody else within an organization has to decide, am I going to show up and bring my best self to work today? Or am I going to be that yeah. skeptic who needs yeah. to be proved all the time? Or that cynic who's determined to hold it back? And, you know, one of the things that I've tried this before, that's right. Yeah. And I came across so many of those people in my time, you know, and I used to have tough conversations with these people and people used to say to me, oh, you can't do that, Colin. You can't change culture in the public service. You can't do this. And I made a career out of kind of, you know, tackling it head on and saying, no, we're trying to create something inclusive and, and diverse here. And what we can't have is individuals like that person holding us back. So everybody's part of it, which means everyone's got to kind of show up and want to contribute, recognizing the fact that we can't always be the, our best selves, you know, kind of every single day. But when you've got people around you who are motivated to succeed, they'll help you through that and coach you through that. And that's when you know you've got a great culture. Let's do it now, Colin. I'm, I'm really interested to what you give us here with this free wisdom. I'm a leader in an organization. I, I want to be proactive and positive. I want to create a great organizational culture that isn't just better for production. It doesn't just mean we make more money, but it also means that that I and my team, we just love coming to work. We enjoy each other's company. We get a lot out of what we do for eight or nine hours of the day. What are your pieces of wisdom? How do I get started if I'm that leader? It, well, it's got to start with everybody understanding each other. Well, understanding themselves, you know, kind of self-aware individuals really are the foundation for everything that's great within our cultures. So, you know, people getting to know their own personalities and then getting to know the personalities of others. What you then create are emotionally intelligent staff who 
understand what they feel and are able to manage it. I think all of the great cultures around the world, this is what they have more than anything else is they have people that sure they're technically very good, but they're also emotionally good. They know when to kind of bite their tongue. They know how to deliver things in a, in a positive way, even if they don't necessarily agree, you know, and, and emotional intelligence or EQ is something that we've downplayed for so long, David, and yet it's the key differentiator for successful businesses. So that would be the first thing. The second thing you just, is, just on oh, that, sorry. on yeah, that, Colin, sorry to interrupt, mate, but you, you quoted Daniel Goleman in your book, of course, how could you not, when emotional intelligence is such a huge part of your story and, and, and what you talk about for leaders and, and organizations. Daniel Goleman's book, his breakthrough book, was written in 1995. Isn't it amazing that before 1995, which isn't that long ago in the big picture, 25 years next year, we didn't have a language for emotional intelligence. And we place so much emphasis on either just straight out cognitive intelligence or skills and expertise and experience. So that amazes me, number one. But number two, it also amazes me that given how much sense it makes and given how much evidence is all around us, if we care to look, so many organizations still don't place enough emphasis or enough importance on on emotional intelligence. Absolutely incredible. So when I was doing the research for the book, David, you know, I kind of went back and had a look at the research and literally it's 95 and then 99 and then 2001 and 2005. And yet we all know that when we do our best work, it's when we're surrounded by people who are good human beings. Like mm. I, I, that for me, I started work in 1987 and the, the times I was happiest, I was surrounded by good human beings and you knew yeah. that they had good, we used to call it people skills. They got good people yeah, skills. That's right. And it still staggers me to this day that people don't see the link between good human beings who know how to do the job really, really well and successful organization cultures. And, you know, Goldman's work is, it's out there. It's in the public domain now. If you want to read the book, you can read it. It's called Emotional Intelligence. And yet people still routinely ignore it. It's amazing to me. It really is. Well, I guess it's a bit like what we were talking about before with, with just culture in general, as opposed to a software upgrade. The software upgrade is so tangible, like people's experience or intelligence or skills, whereas this emotional intelligence things, we all know it when we see it. We all know it when it's not there, but it has that intangibility that I think oftentimes scares people away. It, it scares people from placing the emphasis on it that they know it should have. Yeah, it's so true, David. And I think this is why most people run away from any kind of culture change is they realize that fundamentally, if you want to change a culture from one state and to another, you have to address the lack of emotional intelligence uh, from some people. Because when you talk- It's when tough any, to do. The, yeah, that's right. Whenever anyone talks about a difficult individual, technically they're usually great. Yeah. It's their emotional intelligence that's a problem and they just don't want to deal with it. So how do you have those conversations? You mentioned earlier when you were turning around cultures in the public service, there'd be the cynic in the corner, you know, we've done this before, it's not going to work, you're wasting your time. You confront that head on because you say you have to do that when you're trying to change your culture. How do you literally do that? Because everyone who's listening right now who wants to do something about the culture in their organization is picturing someone who will do that and say that. When you say you confront it head on, what do you really mean? How do you address someone's emotional intelligence? So there's a couple of things. Is Firstly, it's generally in everyone's position description, the kind of human being that they need to be, although why it just isn't inherent in everything, I don't know. So I think honesty is key. 
And honesty in the in the sense that you have to observe a number of things, you have to be able to capture them, write them down, and you have to provide feedback. I'll give you a, a very quick story, David. My last permanent job, on the day that I started, I was told that I had two poorly performing employees who they should have got rid of, which I thought, firstly, was an appalling way to start. So they knew job. that. Yeah, they so knew they, knew they should that. get rid of them. And so I, on day two, when I sat down with them, I told them, and they were both shocked. They were like, no one's ever had a conversation. And I... You know, for me, I said, listen, I'm wiping the slate clean. Here's what I expect of you. And so I laid out in very clear terms my expectations of them as human beings. Not only is technically what you're paid to do, so you have to do that really well, but this is, how, this is what I'm expecting from an interaction perspective. But I think what turns most people off doing it is the fear of the reaction that they'll get. And so this is where making sure you've got plenty of notes, making sure that you refer back to the culture if you if it's defined or the values. It's so key that you're able to refer back, not to kind of how it makes you feel, but really how, what, how it contributes to the overall team feel. And, and for me, it's about team safety. Now, psychological safety is used a lot kind of in the public domain these days, but fundamentally it's true. You can only contribute if it feels safe to do so. And when you've got someone acting in a way that's not emotionally intelligent, they erode the safety. And so often I would use that language. All right. So I interrupted you terribly then, Colin. I only let you get to your first one, which is self-aware individuals, aware of themselves, aware of the others around them, which is just emotionally intelligent human beings. What's number two? Uh, number two is you've got to redefine the culture. If you want, if you want to evolve it, if you want to change it, you've got to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, so why don't we today define what it is that we're actually looking for? Nobody does this. Hardly anybody does this. Is they they don't take the time out of the office. They don't take two days to say, right, all we're going to talk about now is culture. And when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, if you take a year long, you know, I'm working with one organisation, a year long digital transformation program, two days is nothing to establish the way that you're all going to work together, to establish a vision for the program, to establish a set of behaviors that address what you've had before, and to redefine some principles around the way that you'll collaborate and work together. And once you have that, David, what you've got is something new that you can hold each other to, to say, listen, the way that we worked before is gone. This is what we're doing now. We agreed that we would behave in the, this way. We agreed that we would uphold these principles. And so only by redefining the culture can you ever get to a point where it changes. Redefining the culture, because you've got to know where you're heading. Uh, there's a famous quote, I can't remember where it's from, but it says that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And this is, this is telling us which road we want to be on because we know where we're headed. So when you do this well, Colin, with a group or I'm a leader in an organization, what does this conversation actually sound like? Or at least what does the output from this conversation sound like? Is it those tangible, observable behaviors that, are we, that we expect of ourselves and each other? Yeah, and it changes straight away, David. You wouldn't believe how much it changes just after taking two days off site. Because all of a sudden, and, and all I do is facilitate conversations. I'm very aware that if I tell people what it should be, then it becomes my culture. This is often the mistake yeah. that you know I and others have made in the past with consultants is we get them to come in, define some stuff for us, and then they leave and we go, yeah, that's not ours. Yeah, no, I don't They send the invoice. They send send the invoice for half a million dollars (laughs) and you're like, wow. And so it is, it's very, it's very, if you can get it, yeah, consultants in the US made $64 billion last year, so don't feel sorry for them just yet. Uh, They, um, 
the tangible output is a culture deck. Now, Netflix made this famous in 2015 with their culture deck, which all it really does is describe the way we do things around here. And so, you know, we can get to that in two days by just agreeing those core pillars of, of workplace culture, which include vision, behavior, collaboration, but it's owned by the group. So straight away, you've got a sense of ownership and accountability. And as exactly as you said, a definition of what it is that we want to become that really, you know, provides motivation and inspiration for the team. What are the barriers that I'm going to come across if I'm a leader trying to lead that conversation? Say I'm a, I lead a small team or a, or a large team or in a small organization, large organization, and I can't afford you, Colin. I can't afford anyone. This is something I'm going to have to go it alone because my organization is not yet supporting this and I want to prove it right. I've got to do it myself. What barriers am I going to come across in this conversation? The biggest barrier, and, and I've been in exactly the same position myself, David, is the, the, the biggest barriers were people don't want to buy into your vision of what it should be. So you have to talk about the value that it brings. Not it, You can't make it a passion project of yours. As soon as you're like, I'm going to be responsible for changing the culture, people are like, yeah, good luck with that. You're going to come across people who don't Because they to- can prove you wrong, right? They can, they can oh. just choose straight up to prove you wrong. You won't make it because I'm not going to let you. Yeah, and I heard it myself a million times, David. Oh, we've tried that before. I've seen people like you in the business before. I used to love that one. People like you have been here before. You'll last six months and then you'll leave. And mm. <laughs> they were only right once. And it, it's true. It's like a badge of honor. Yeah, it is. And they'll do everything to get in their way. And they'll say, a badge of honor is right. And they'll say, listen, I've been through a thousand of these things before. ISO 9000, Prince 2, Six Sigma, it's agile. <laughs> I'll get in the way of everything. Just you watch me. So you have to, you know, people have to be prepared to deal with those individuals. But you deal know, with often, the individuals. Yeah, and, and but often I have to say you have to have the courage of your conviction. If you want to do this thing called cultural evolution, then you have to sell the value of it. You have to embrace your first follower as an equal and then mm. really build a team of like-minded individuals who want to see things done in the right way in order to help the organization achieve its goals. There's a certain amount of self-sabotage to some individuals in an organization. I mean, if they're saying to you, hey, people like you have been here before, we'll see the back of you just like we saw the back of them. What they're really saying is, I'm going to do everything I can to stop you from making this a better place to work. They are, David. But, you know, I always started those conversations with empathy because too often the communication was poor from senior management downwards. And and it felt like just another thing on the plate. You know, I, went, I remember one particular conversation in the public service when I was working in New Zealand. And I said, so what's the problem? I think his name was David as well. I was like, so David, what, what's the actual problem here? <laughs> he said, I'm sick of being told what to do and never having time for my job. And I said, okay, how about we do a deal? I'll free up time for you to do your job. Not only that, I'll find some time for you to think if you're prepared to give me a little bit of effort to help me help me and the team on this change of culture. And so we did that. We, we, I got him uninvited from a number of meetings. I stopped people copying him in emails. Then all of a sudden he was like, oh, it, you know, he felt like he'd been unleashed. He's like, it feels completely different. All I'd done is made a couple of decisions around yeah. some of the fundamentally stupid things that we do in business, like back-to-back meetings and thousands and thousands oh, of emails. Don't get me know? started. Oh, yeah. It's, it's that, that back-to-back meetings, you know, you just nailed the big two. Back-to-back meetings and copying each other in on emails, hundreds of emails a day. 
It is the bane of every organization I have ever worked for. And it makes me sad to watch people do it to themselves and to each other. Because when it all comes down to it, these are human beings who go to work for eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day, and they just go through this mindless dance of not thinking and just shuffling stuff from one side of their desk to another, either literally or figuratively. Uh, yeah, mindless dance. I love that. I'm totally stealing that. Yeah, they do, but it's their fault. You know, and I it joke is. about this on stage and in workshops all of the time. I always say, who's got back-to-back meetings? You know, the last thing we did back-to-back <laughs> as humans was shoot each other. And all these kind of things, but it's everybody's fault because no one's got the courage to say no. The reason that meetings are 30 minutes and 60 minutes is because Outlook is, that's the default in yeah. Outlook. No one can change it. Yeah. It's two mouse clicks. The reason that <laughs> people have thousands of emails, they copy people in because they're covering their asses. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so these are things that and I It becomes the did. culture. That's it what we do around culture. here. That's we right. We copy each other in. We, we book back-to-back meetings. And even worse, people have heard me on this podcast say before, when senior management act, you know, back-to-back meetings, they're so important, that becomes a badge of honor. And the next level of down, they want back-to-back meetings all day and they want to be able to rush around and tell everyone how busy they are too because that's what their boss does and that's what they aspire to. Yeah, they think being incessantly busy is productive when it's the antithesis of productivity. You know, all that does is suck up time to actually do your job. Then they're working all night, working all weekend. They're back in on a Monday morning telling you how much they've worked over the weekend and how busy they are. It's like, you know what, why don't you just make it – yeah, why don't you just make a few decisions about your priorities? Get back mm. some semblance of balance in your life and stop boring everyone with your, your war stories about how busy you are. It's heartbreaking, you know? isn't it? It is, but it's all down to choice, David. And, you know, these are choices that I didn't make. You know, I would have like random 17-minute meetings, 42-minute meetings. If you were Love late it. for any of my meetings, then, you know, you were never Finished. late for a second one. And yeah. these are the choices that people can make to be different rather than conform to the cultural norms. Now, you were telling a story in there about someone, I think, in New Zealand whose name was David, and we are all difficult human beings. Every David on earth is difficult. And, but what you, what you did for him was you just gave him some attention. He's just had people come and go through his organization. He, he has been the constant there, and there have been people who've come in and, and moved out wanting to change it, and eventually he's just got his back up. He's like, well, no one ever talks to me about it. I'm just going to be cynical. But it sounds like you gave him a bit of space and a little bit of attention, and it was much easier to get him on board than it may have looked like at that first conversation. And, you know, afterwards, uh, my manager said to me, I don't know what you've done there. I don't want to know. I don't know how you got him over the line. It's just great. And I was like, all I did was listen. All I did was shut my mouth and open my ears. Because he said, as he said to me, he said, there have been too many self-important people in this business telling me what to do who have never asked me for any help or my opinion. He said, so I just come in, do my job, go on. He's like, you know, and I never wanted to be part of everything. My great friend, Stephen Covey, who I don't know, obviously, seek first to understand and then be understood. Can't go wrong with that. I think it's his fifth of his seven habits of highly effective people. Now, Colin, you are giving us your free gold. You've given us one and two. How many are they there, by the way? How many are we getting here? Oh, I don't know. I'm just coming up off the top of my head. Uh, I don't know. I can give you another two or three. It depends how, many, how, long, how long have we got. <laughs> Let's go two more. Give us your best two. Give us a what will feel like a complete set. You've talked about self-aware individuals. Yeah. That was number one. Number two was we've got to redefine it. We've got to talk about where we're headed. What's number three? 
Uh, number three is smarter ways of working. Now, the big banks are loving this at the minute, new ways of working project rather than smarter ways of working. Smarter ways of working, very, very simply, David, is looking at some of the dumb stuff that you do and saying, what's a smarter or better way that we can do this? There are so many processes. There are so many swim lanes. There are so many people moaning about them, and yet no one's coming up with any solutions. No one's saying, let's take an hour to ask ourselves, is there, can we shorten this procurement process from six months to six weeks? And I think, you know, if you want to improve as a culture, there's a bunch of dumb stuff that you do. There's a bunch of dumb projects that you're doing that you should just stop right now. And all that needs is a little bit of courage, a little bit of time, you know, some creative thinking, and then, you know, taking some action. It's amazing that that self-fulfilling prophecy or that vicious cycle, we're too busy to stop and think about the stupid stuff we're doing that's wasting our time that we don't need to do anymore. We're too busy to do that. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, some organizations, again, you know, they're trying to do the right cultural things. They're setting up innovation hubs. When actually the mm. thing that will make the biggest difference is the thing that Jane's frustrated with, that she's been frustrated with for a year, but no one will listen to her. And all she wants is to, you know, to get rid of that Word document that formats all over the place and just give her a PDF that she can fill in simply that she doesn't have to reformat. It's simple It'll change her life. Like change her life. Yeah. All of a sudden, she'll get yeah. half a day back. And they're yeah. the things that hold organizations back. She doesn't need a new office fit out or a ping pong table at lunchtime. She just needs the tools to work. It is amazing if you were to stop and listen to what people really need because- I reckon if we were to go through a process and find out what is the one thing that would change your day and your day and your day, make your day better, as a leader, you would be boggled. Your mind will be boggled by the simplicity of some of the requests. Yeah, well, for one organization I work with, they came up with, you know, I do this kind of thing about innovation ideas, and they're all simple things. One of them was moving the fridge. Is like we <laughs> spend so much time shuffling from the fridge, which is around the corner from where the tea bags are. If we could just move the fridge, it would just save a whole load of time. And of course, they, they moved it, I don't know, about 20 feet. And everyone was like, it's brilliant. Why didn't we do it before? Right. And you get, yeah, you've got other people trying to solve the world with a new yeah. information system database. Yeah. And all they wanted to do was move the milk. <laughs> we can give you a new database, which is going to cost the business a million bucks. Or we can move the fridge. <laughs> well, we can we can pay a chippy to come up with a new cabinet and shift the fridge. How about that? Yeah, the fridge That's every great. day. Yeah, I like it. All right, lucky last, Colin. What's your last piece of advice? Uh, lucky last would be feedback, uh, David. I think you know I mentioned feedback. The fact that I gave some feedback, and I read a, a paper that McKinsey's wrote in two thousand and I want to say seventeen, and they talked about the fact that continuous feedback on behaviours and outcomes is kind of like a key facet of great cultures. And I think we're very good at providing feedback on behavior when it's far too late, this nonsense of six monthly and annual performance reviews. What we don't do is address the issues when we have the time and desire to do it there and then, because that's where it needs to be done. You know, the best time to address any kind of poor performance or poor behavior is always right now. And that's what great cultures do. Continual feedback is is always on. Those teachable moments. Look, you just gave away the fact that you feel exactly the same way as I do about performance reviews. I'm a leadership consultant. I feel very strongly about leaders being empowered and having the skills and the courage and the desire to have performance conversations right now when they matter all the time so that it is in the moment and it makes sense and it's not too late. 
And organisations kind of know that good leaders have those conversations, but they also know that most of their managers won't do it. So they put in a system, they systematise what what should just be a great leadership behaviour. And as soon as you systematise it, it takes away the meaning. It's like a relationship. You can't systematise love, but that's what they've tried to do. And it breaks my heart to see that. Well, and they've tried to do that for the same reason that organizations don't teach people how to change cultures. They don't teach managers how to manage. You know, we've got in in most organizations, people get promoted on length of tenure or we really should give Clive a promotion. He's due one. And and, and even if we do promote Clive, he might be a good guy, but we, we then say, right, as a manager, he needs these people skills that he doesn't have right now. He doesn't know how to negotiate. He doesn't know how to listen. He doesn't have any empathy. You know, and rather than teach people how to do those things so they get good at providing feedback, it's like, right, Clive, so you've got to fill this in twice a year. We'll send you an email and then we'll send you half a dozen reminders. The staff Mm -hmm. don't care about it. It's way too late. It'll change nothing. But if you follow the process, you might get your bonus. And then we wonder why nothing (laughs) changes. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. All right. They're great pieces of advice, Colin. Now, I want to close with one final piece of encouragement from you, the Culture Fix Guru. What are you going to tell leaders who know they want to, they need to do it, they want to do it, you've given them some tools, what's your pump-up story? Don't wait. Start. Don't wait for the perfect conditions. They never exist. The perfect culture. Don't wait till the head of HR starts or your new CIO starts. Don't wait till you've got your last member of staff. Culture lives and breathes every single day. It changes. So it's better to make a positive impact now than wait till it gets worse. So if you want to change your culture, take action now. That is brilliant advice. A great place to leave it. Colin D. Ellis, I've so enjoyed our chat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, David. Cheers. And that was Colin D. Ellis. I bet you could hear his enthusiasm and passion for all things culture. And why not? The vibe pulsing through our workplace is one of the most powerful forces in our lives, like it or not. And how about those nuggets of wisdom? To enhance workplace culture, we need, number one, self-awareness as individuals. Number two, to redefine the culture. Number three, design smarter ways of working, get rid of the old processes that don't make any sense. Stop doing those things that are outdated and obsolete. And number four, we need to build a feedback loop. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Colin on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.